All right, good morning, everyone. Uh, in case we haven't met, my name is Brad Zinn. I'm the senior pastor here at Mosaic, and um, it's really great to see you. I know I say that a lot, but it actually is true. Uh, I want to start today by showing you a short video clip. Um, and what I want you to do is kind of come back with me in time two years, just two years. Uh, the clip I want to show you, I think it's going to be helpful and set up what we're going to talk about today. But some of the current events are two years old. It's from 2014. So I want you to put yourself in the mindset of 2014, okay? Can you do that? I'm getting tepid response. Can you, can you come back with me to 2014? Okay, all right. Um, what were you thinking about uh, about this time in 2014? You may not remember exactly, but what were you worried about? And how did you work through that worry? And with that in mind, let me show you this clip. So yeah, what headlines or what news stories have been making you a little anxious lately? Ebola coming to the U.S. The Ebola stuff is really freaky. Like the Ebola virus thing going on. Um, I'm kind of worried about the Ebola virus. And I suppose the Ebola broke out. The Ebola outbreak. We saw that today at the deli. The Ebola headline that was on New York Times, and it was also all over Facebook. Definitely the plane stuff, the Malaysian Airlines stuff. Well, we, we just sort of from the UK, so all the, the plane crashes made me a little bit scared for a while. I'm traveling a lot at the moment. Are the stories about all the airplanes. I would say the plane crashes are kind of scary. The Eric Garner case, really. That chokehold with the officers, but that's such a bad thing that happened in my LA. I really connected with the Eric Gardner story, um, the guy that was out of Staten Island. There's about three wars kicking off in the, in the middle of the world at the minute, which is not great. The news story that has me most concerned is what's going on at the, in the Gaza Strip right now. And I feel exactly the same way. I was also going to say the Gaza Strip. Gaza, Palestinian, and um, the Israeli war. Israel and the Palestinians. Israel, Ukraine. The ruling of the Hobby Lobby stuff. Nothing, I don't watch the news. And do you have a way of making yourself feel better after you've read these stories? Um, maybe call this guy over to my right. Um, <laughs> uh, he's very positive and, uh, and uplifting. Eat ice cream. Running long distances and doing yoga is a great way to go back to center. You see, that's the healthy answer. I eat chocolate. <laughs> I'm an artist, you know. Um, music is my escape for everything. I'd like to try to learn more about it. Yeah, definitely reading more. Just ignore it. <laughs> well, I try my best. I don't think about it as much. Like, we're on holiday, and it's, and it is, it's terrible, but you are kind of like, I'm just not going to watch the news today. Well, it's still here. Don't worry about it. It's fine. All right, so that was 2014. Maybe some of you remember where you were and what you were doing when some of those news stories were breaking. But are things really any different today? And actually, I wonder if, if you add into that all of everything that's going on with our political cycle right now, if things don't feel just a little bit worse than they did in 2014. If you pick up a newspaper, check out your favorite news feed, you stumble across any cable news network, you're likely to feel one of two ways, stressed out or depressed. Am I right? And it seems like all of the real news, news that doesn't involve cats being frightened by cucumbers or babies rocking out to their favorite music jam, the news that actually is covered that's supposedly real news is all bad news. 
And it's actually true. Not necessarily that it's all bad news in the world, but that what we hear tends to be bad news. Research shows that the news we get tends to be on purpose bad news. Um, Shana Gardarian is a, a political scientist, and she wrote this in the Washington Post. She said, terrorism is newsworthy because it is inherently dramatic and threatening. Media competition means that journalists and editors have incentives to use emotionally powerful visuals and storylines to gain and even maintain what they see as an ever-shrinking news audience. So the world may actually not be falling apart, but it definitely can feel like it's falling apart because people tune in more for bad news, so it gets more attention. Think about what you've read or seen about in our current political cycle with terrorist activity, racism, and violence, and it affects us. It's discouraging, sometimes disheartening, and even overwhelming, isn't it? Dr. Graham Davey is another social scientist, and he wrote this. He said, the images change our overall mood to a more negative one, more sad or more anxious. And it's this change in mood that leads to psychological changes in the way we attend to things around us, things like we're more likely to pick out things in our environment that are potentially negative or threatening. And this can have a vicious cycle effect. So it feeds on itself. And once it starts, it's hard to stop. So, and I think we saw this in our video that we watched this morning, that it's tempting with all the bad news that's around us actually to just ignore what's happening and bury our heads in the sand. You notice how people are like, I just want, I'm on vacation. I just want to pretend like none of these news stories are happening. Maybe I'll just have a bar of chocolate or ice cream. You know, I'll just bury my head for a moment so that I can have a moment of peace. But what I want to ask today and what I want to suggest is maybe there's another way that we can live. What if there's actually a way to tap into good news, to good things that are happening in the world? And what if we can rediscover good news in a way that, that doesn't ignore the realities of our times, but rather gives us hope that they can change? And that's what this whole season is about at Mosaic Community Church, rediscovering good news. And this week, we're going to start by talking about how we can just simply tap into the good things that are happening around us. What if God is actually up to good things in your life, but it's possible to sort of miss it if we're not careful? So we're going to start today. How do we even just tap in? So to do that, I want to read a passage from you. It's a little bit longer. It's actually so long we couldn't fit the whole thing in your bulletin. The whole thing will be behind me. Um, but this is a really fun story from the first chapter of Luke. And I won't give you too much background. I'll just read it. So this is Luke chapter 1. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. And his wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. And both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless, because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both well advanced in years. Once, when Zechariah's division was on duty, and he was serving as a priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of the incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. 
Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a great joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He's never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he's born. And many of the people of Israel will, be, will, will he bring back to the Lord their God, and he will go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man, and my wife is well along in years. And the angel said to him, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not be able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondered why he'd stayed in the temple so long. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he'd seen a vision in the temple. For he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. And when his time of service was completed, he returned home. And after his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. And when they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah, But his mother spoke up and said, no, he is to be called John. And they said to her, there is no one among your relatives who has that name. And then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. He asked for a writing tablet, and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue was loosed, and he began to speak, praising God. And the neighbors were all filled with awe. And throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. And everyone who heard about it wondered about it, asking, what then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. Now, in our story today, a lot happens. (laughs) But at one point, an angel shows up to deliver what he names as good news to someone who really was a good, good guy, Zechariah. But Zechariah has a lot of trouble taking it in. And I think that we can learn something from him this morning. I think what we'll see is that a big story, a big question, and a simple action can help us be prepared for what God is doing in our lives, even while we wait for a long time in a situation that is less than ideal. So let's take a look at that. Let's look at how we can tap into the good news that's happening in our world. And the first thing I like to suggest is that we find the big story. We find the big story, a bigger story, a bigger story even than just our own. And I think if you pay attention to the way Luke tells the story and the way he lays things out, he's really going to great lengths to tie the birth of John here into a much bigger story. Now, in the Bible, there is this motif or this pattern where great prophets and great uh, men and women of the Lord are born to people previously thought to be unable to have children. You notice in verse 7 it says of Zechariah and his wife that they were both childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both well advanced in years. Now this might just seem 
like a really interesting detail. It certainly makes the story more interesting. But if you review the history of the Hebrew nation, you'll find that many of the most influential prophets and patriarchs were born to infertile couples with whom God then intervened miraculously and helped them be able to become pregnant. So, for example, a famous guy, Abraham, and his wife, Sarah, they're really, really old, and they've never been able to have a baby. I think, if I remember, Abraham's close to or 100 years old. And uh, Sarah's infertile, and lo and behold, the Lord intervenes, and they have a child. Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and Rachel, Samuel's mother, Hannah, among others, they all struggle with infertility until God comes in and makes the difference. So when Luke chooses to include this detail in the story, not only is it interesting, make the story better, not only does it provide sort of dramatic tension, oh my gosh, how could they have a kid if if they're uh, infertile, it also connects John to the great line of prophets who were dramatically assisted into life directly by God's miraculous intervention. So I'm not suggesting that Luke makes up this detail to connect John to the great line of prophets from the past, but rather that he chooses to include this detail in part to show that the story of John the Baptist continues in the line of the story of God's great prophets. And this is underlined even more in the words that Gabriel uses to describe the life and ministry that's to come for John later. So in verse 17, Gabriel says, And he will go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of his parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now in this sentence, Luke again shows Gabriel connecting John to this bigger story that's happening all around Zechariah that Zechariah seems not to be cluing into. And he connects him to the story of the kingdom of God. Now, we're going to talk in depth and in detail about what the kingdom of God is next week. But for this week, I think it's just important to know that the story of the kingdom of God is the story of God through Jesus putting the world back together again, healing broken systems, healing broken people, renewing everything. And like the angel said in our story today, this is good news. And the baby John, what we're learning here, he's got a role to play in this renewal of all things. And in the Hebrew scriptures, it says that when this kingdom of God comes, there'll be a prophet who comes before the king of the new kingdom. And so if you read, here's a few examples of some of the things that are written in the Hebrew scriptures about this prophet to come. So in Malachi 3.1, it says, see, I'm sending my messenger to prepare the way before me and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And then in chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, it says, Lo, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of parents to their children and the hearts of children to their parents. And then Isaiah, chapter 40, it says, A voice cries out in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight the desert a highway. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now, let's just read what Gabriel says to Zechariah about John and who he'll be in verse 17. He says, And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn hearts of parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So what we're seeing here, and this is a lot of background just to get to where I'm going here, is that in just one sentence, Luke ties John to the fulfillment of these three prophecies 
that anticipate how God's great story of the kingdom of God will continue to move forward. In other words, John's story is not a new story. His story is finding its place in the continuation of a much larger, more grand, overarching story. A grander, bigger narrative. The great story of God. Okay? In philosophical circles, this idea, this idea of this grand, overarching, unifying story is known as, stay with me here, a meta-narrative. Have you ever heard that term? You can impress your friends this week by talking about meta-narratives. Well, let me just, the only reason I bring it up is that right now the idea of a meta-narrative or an overarching story is not super popular. Meta-narratives are often seen as power plays. They're ways to define reality that ultimately are seen to only serve those in power and their attempts to define reality as they see fit. So actually a meta-narrative can be used as a tool of oppression to tell people what the story of their lives is, whether it fits or not, and to make people fit into certain roles. Some of them are oppressive. And so a lot of philosophers and a lot of people don't like meta-narratives these days because they can be used to control people. Instead, today, we like to think, and it's more popular to dismiss meta-narratives in favor of smaller, local stories. And the emphasis in these local narratives isn't fitting into a greater story, but rather establishing one's own completely independent point of view and story. Now, here's why I'm bringing this all up. The dismissal of a meta-narrative or any meta-narrative can have problems. Think of it this way. If the most important thing in your local narrative is your local narrative, what happens when things don't work out? When your life is in trouble, when everything looks like bad news, if your point of view and your local narrative, your local story, is the most defining thing in your life, and things aren't working, all of a sudden, the definitions or the foundations of your life can be shaken. So if your personal local story, your local narrative, is that family will carry you through hard times... What happens when you lose a loved one? If your career provides for you a sense of meaning and purpose, what happens when the economy tanks and everything you've saved for retirement is gone and you've lost your job? And if your narrative consists of the pre, even the preeminence of love, what happens if an important relationship in your life ends? What if you are divorced? If you live for your children, what if your kids get caught up in gang activity or leave your faith or something else? And what I'm suggesting is that to live a healthy, balanced life, it seems to me that we need a bigger picture of life than our own perspective. A connection to purpose, a connection to meaning that goes beyond what we can determine from our point of view alone. A bigger story can provide this for us. If we have the right approach to the story. So here's the difference that I'm suggesting. An overarching story or a meta-narrative 
is only oppressive when someone says that they have the whole story figured out. Did you catch that? When someone gets to tell you how you should interpret everything in this bigger and wider story. That's not Christianity. In the Christian faith, there is a big overarching story. We are told, however, that we have to interpret our place in the story. That's what Zechariah is trying to do, but struggling with. You know, the details for our lives and others are not always obvious. Instead, to follow Jesus is to join in an ongoing developing story that's not static. It can't be nailed down, but instead it's unfolding before us. You notice Zechariah, he's kind of struggling with this, and he makes a mistake, I think, here, because he tries to get the angel Gabriel to nail it all down for him. Do you notice the question he asked the angel? He says, how can I be sure of this? Make everything concrete so that I know beyond any shadow of a doubt. Now, the big story of the Bible, there's lots of, you can even call them facts in the story. The writers of Scripture want those who read them to be able to know certain things, things about love, about justice, about Jesus, about his mission, how we should interact with each other, things that we can hold and we can know very deeply. So the big story of the Bible, the biblical, if you will, meta narratives, it does give us facts, but how we interpret those facts is a journey. And any meta-narrative can become oppressive when any person or government claims to have it all figured out and know all the implications and where interpretation is no longer needed. You see the difference? I think we need our local narratives. I think we need an understanding of who we are. But I also think for our own health, We need an understanding of where we fit in a bigger picture. Not that we have to understand everything beyond a shadow of a doubt, but the opportunity for us is to connect to a bigger overarching story. And that bigger overarching story is not meant to oppress us, control us, because the way it's laid out, we are invited into the story to interpret and ask God what he's up to to look for what he's doing and join into something that's not totally pre-subscribed for you. You are involved in interpreting your place in the story. No one can tell you what that is. And sometimes, though, I mean, it can be hard to see what God is doing because our personal stories can be kind of messed up or broken. So Zechariah is a good example of this in our story today. His, his personal story, his personal narrative, when he compares it to this bigger overarching story of God's goodness, seems kind of out of whack, doesn't it? He, he has two prayers in this passage. One is for a child, and the other is for the deliverance of Israel. He's been praying those things for years. It says he's advanced in age. His wife is infertile. 
So how is he going to have that son? His nation is occupied by foreign troops, the Romans. This incredibly powerful empire. That's the only kingdom that he can see. And he's been waiting so long for these two things that it seems like he's sort of given up. And the narrative of his life, the story of his life, at least in these areas, appears to be broken down. Yet, the narrative or the story of his life is just about to join into God's story in an amazing way. In fact, his narrative has actually been progressing just the way it should have been. And both of his prayers are actually being answered right in the middle of this passage, right in this moment in the story that we get a glimpse of. What I'd like to say is that a lot of us, we're probably in similar situations in our lives. How do you feel about your life right now? When you look around, do you see all bad news? Do you feel anxious? Do you feel stressed out? Are you overwhelmed? Sooner or later, we all find ourselves in those types of places, in those types of situations, in those spots. So when we do, let me just suggest that we ask, that we do this next thing, that we ask ourselves a big question. And the question I'm suggesting is, how will this be? And I'm taking this question, not from our passage today, actually, but from a parallel passage that Luke places right alongside the story of the birth of John. So we don't have time to look in depth at both stories, but if you read in Luke the story of the birth of John, it's interspersed with the story of the birth of Jesus. He tells them at the same time. He like cuts from one and he cuts to the other. It's very much like you might see a television show laid out. He goes from here to there and then back again. And there are a lot of parallels. So each story starts the same way. They start with uh, a telling of who's in political power, followed by a description of the parents-to-be, followed by an appearance of Gabriel. So it follows the same format exactly. The only thing that differs besides one is the birth of John, one is the birth of Jesus, is the way that the person who meets Gabriel responds to Gabriel. So Zechariah, we see, he says, how can I be sure of this? And for this response, the angel is like, well, here's how you're going to be sure. You're not going to be able to talk for nine months. Sorry. You wanted everything nailed down? Well, here's your sign. You can't talk anymore. All right. So it doesn't seem like he's not super mad at him, but I don't think he's like super pleased with his response either. I think that's fair to say. But when Mary, in the birth story of Jesus, has a very similar interaction with Gabriel, her response is that she gets this crazy news. Uh, You're going to be pregnant without ever having sex. That's a pretty crazy thing to hear, yeah? So she responds this way. She says, how will this be? And here, though, Mary's not rebuked at all. Now, it kind of sounds like she said the same thing, but if you think about what she says, she didn't say the same thing. What's the difference? Well, I could be wrong. But I think the difference is that Mary asks to see while Zechariah asks for proof. So Mary is asking God to show her what he's doing so that she can join in. She can link up her local story with this bigger overarching story. 
Well, Zechariah wants God to remove the uncertainty in his situation. And in the first example, we see Zechariah's sort of local story holding him back from experiencing or embracing what the angel calls good news coming into his life. He's missing it. His own point of view, namely that he and his wife are just too old. Not to mention the fact that he's been waiting for years and years and years for a change and nothing's ever happened. That keeps him self-focused and unaware of this greater story that's happening all around him. The biggest story that's been told is happening and he's a major player, but he can't see it. Mary, however, she's open to reinterpret her personal story and personal point of view. And she's willing to change that to accommodate and partner with this greater story of what God is doing. And in saying, how will this be? She expects, she anticipates that God has a greater story and that she will be able to fit into it. Do you see the difference? Prove it to me versus, whoa, how can I get in on this? How can I see what's happening here and partner? So maybe a simpler way to think of this is just, and let me encourage you to do this, find ways to turn our gaze away from our own personal narrative, our own personal story. Because sometimes we can get so focused on how we see things and what's happening and our interpretation of what that is that we zone out and lose touch with everything else that's going on around us. And we can only see and interpret things through one point of view. So maybe we can help ourselves get out of that by just asking the question, and finding ways to make space for the question of, God, what are you doing? Not that we can completely figure it out. Not that there won't be any mystery. But so that we can be available to embrace what we can see. What we can interpret. What we do see that God's doing around us. But to do this, we have to see beyond ourselves. Our point of view can't be the only one. We've got to get outside of that. Now, that might seem a little daunting. I don't know how that sounds to you, but it's not meant to be. What I'm really talking about is just keep it simple. That's what Zechariah does here. See, that's a great thing. He has an opportunity to sort of wake up, snap out of it. There's a really dramatic experience where he can't speak and he has nine months to think about it. But even so, he has this opportunity to just sort of pop his perspective and begin to consider what else might be happening. And in the end, he does something really simple. He takes simple action. In verse 62, it says, Then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. And he asked for a writing tablet. And to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, His name is John. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue was loosed and he began to speak praising God. So, Zechariah did something super, super simple. If there was one thing that he saw and that he knew he was supposed to do, it was to name his child John. He could see that, right? And that's what he did. 
If he couldn't see anything else, nothing else made sense, one thing did, and he did it. So this is what Zechariah does, and the result is that his heart is open to joy and praise and the Holy Spirit. And if you keep reading, he just goes off. He prophesies. He's like speaking out this crazy awesome poem about his praise and his love for God and how faithful God is. His local story powerfully comes in line with God's meta-narrative through a simple act of obedience. And this is what we want. We want to touch something transcendent that gives us joy and connects us to God even when everything isn't perfect. We want to experience good news in the here and now. Zechariah didn't get to see everything of the kingdom of God in his life, and not in that moment. So he was still waiting for some things, even though it was playing out in front of him. But when we connect, when we touch the transcendent, the Holy Spirit, through simple acts of obedience that allow room for God to enter our lives, the result is joy and praise and an experience of life that we're hungry for. We want to experience Good news in the here and now. Sometimes it's just the small things that open the door for that. So, what are some simple actions that you can take during this season to prepare yourself to see what God's doing in your life? Because we're going to talk about good news a lot this fall. This is just the beginning. And what we want are hearts that are open, eyes that are open, space in our lives where we can actually connect to and see good news and maybe even be a part of it. So here's a few tips as we get started. These are simple things that you can do. My first tip, there's no space to fill in. You just have to scribble it if you want to write it down. Turn it off. Turn it off. What am I talking about? The news outlets, Facebook, They are purposely focused on bad news because that's what sells. That's what gets people to watch. I'm not saying burn your TV. I'm just saying sometimes at least turn it off. Maybe for a week, don't sleep with your bed. No, don't sleep with your bed by your phone. Don't sleep with your phone by your bed. Set it aside, unplug. You know yourself. Go out in nature if that's you. Get away from the bombardment. Resist the urge to reach in your pocket whenever you have a moment of silence. Months ago, in another sermon, I mentioned they did studies (laughs) that found out people would rather shock themselves with electricity than be alone with their own thoughts for more than three minutes. (laughs) Studies have proven people who are afraid of electricity will shock themselves I think it was something, I might fudge on these numbers because it's been like 43% of women will do this. 63% of men will do this. Shock themselves rather than be alone with your own thoughts. I hate to tell you, you need to be alone with your own thoughts. Otherwise, they just clutter everything up. They're always bouncing around it. You know why? Part of the reason you don't feel any peace, part of the reasons you haven't dealt with all of those things. Some of them are emotional. 
Some of them are just practical. They're just bopping around in your head. Try this. If you go out to lunch today or sometime with a friend this week, everyone put your cell phones in the middle of the table. Just try it, all right? First person who checks their phone gets the check. I saw some some of the eyes went like this. It's funny. I can see how you guys respond. You didn't know that. Um, Try that. See how it goes. Have a real conversation with someone without stopping in the middle, right? And then do this. As you create space in your life, and in the future we can talk about more practical and more practical ways to do this, remember the big story and let God talk to you about what he's up to. Find ways to do this. Now, for you, this might... I've started something new in my life, which I never did any time in my life. Silence. Silence. Science shows that we have pathways, neural pathways in our brains that are like ruts. And we will go back to the same stuff over and over. If you're obsessing about something, if you're worried about something, if something's bothering you, your mind will circulate, it will circulate, unless you kick it out of that. And they're learning that the ways... One way that you can do that is through silence. That's science. But in the Bible, there's these things. Be silent and know that I'm God. Find ways to build silence into your life. I read a study that said, well, I didn't read the whole study. I read an article that talked about the study. Let's be honest. I'm not, I'm not that cool. I'm not reading journals and stuff like that. But um, that it takes at least 12 minutes to reset. Can you do 12 minutes of silence? Try it. Let it declutter your mind so that you can actually have space to listen. You might be surprised. You might just have 12 minutes of silence that will be good for your soul. But you also might, remember the reflection we did a few weeks ago? You might hear a gentle whisper that's actually the voice of God. You won't know for sure. But whatever unction you get from that whisper, try it, do it, respond, take a simple act. And the third little tip here is, um, and we'll talk much more about this this fall, is be good news. Be good news. That'll change your perspective on what's happening in the world. What I'm saying is you have that little unction, you hear that little gentle whisper, and involve something to serve someone, do that thing. Listen, respond, help a friend, help a neighbor, help a stranger. Look around you and ask yourself this question. What could be good news? And if you're obsessed with the bad news, if you don't have any space in your mind, you're totally cluttered, you probably will never ask yourself this question. But if you can make some space, look around you in your life. What would be good news for your neighbor? Seriously, what would be good news for your neighborhood? What would, what would that look like? When you imagine a friend of yours in a really hard spot, what would good news look like for your friend? What would it look like? Practical. Be the good news. Do that thing. Show up with that meal. 
uh, slip that envelope with some money under the door. I don't even know what the good news is for your friends or your neighborhood, but you do. Or maybe you don't, but you could, but you just have to ask. You have that moment of silence. Ask the Holy Spirit, what would good news look like for Rhonda, for the block, for this whole neighborhood? You know, one of the things we're doing during this series is um, asking people to look at their own lives and ask God, where are you at work? What have you been doing? And so, actually, I sort of put it to some of our uh, leaders and members of the church to ask God this question because I feel like we need to hear that good things are actually happening. Um, And that, one, for the people doing the reflecting is so powerful, but two, for us to hear the stories... And so I've got someone who's going to kick it off for us this week. I want to invite Erica to come up. This is Erica Chess. I give a round of applause. <laughs> Talking about what God's doing in your life sounds easy, but it can be a little scary too. So we all got your back, Erica. And I'm going to turn this over to Erica right now, and she's going to share a little bit of her own reflections about what God's doing in her life. It's scary, but I'm among friends, so thank you. (laughs) Um, For most of my life, I've been a perfectionist. I'm not sure when I first noticed those tendencies to strive towards perfection, but I have a vague memory of crying in middle school when I got an A- minus on my report card. If I didn't run well during a cross-country meet, I would be crushed and vowed to myself that I would improve my time for my next race. My perfectionism was one of the ways I found my value. As long as I was doing the right thing, getting the approval that I wanted from others, making others happy, crossing every T, dotting every I, I felt that I was quote-unquote good. I thought that being good and pleasing other people would be my ticket to success in life. And this mindset carried over into my faith and my relationship with God. Having grown up Catholic, I understood faith to be a regimen that was structured and basically a checklist of things to do. Go to confession, check. Pray the rosary, check. Go to church with grandma on Christmas Eve, check. I eventually found my way to a different understanding of faith when I was in college through campus ministry. I became very involved in Bible studies, went to retreats, led small groups, gave out Bible tracts, and participated in all those activities that were presented to me. It was an exciting time of growth, learning about God and wanting to be a good Christian. As long as I was doing everything that good Christians do, I would be able to be at peace with myself and expect God to give me good things. As I entered my late 20s, I began to feel like I was missing something. I couldn't put my finger on it entirely, but I knew that something didn't feel right. Like my faith belonged to someone else. It was almost as if I was going through the motions, expecting to receive all that God promises us in the scripture, but not actually getting it. I watched as my close friends got married, began to have children, have great success in their careers, and I was on the sidelines watching. I wondered to myself, what am I doing wrong? Am I not praying enough? Am I not involved in enough church activities? Maybe I need to fix myself so that I can have the things that I thought would bring happiness and joy. When I found that my perfectionism wasn't working anymore, I felt lost. 
That last feeling began a painful yet beautiful journey for me in the first part of my 30s. I realized I was living a faith that was not my own. I had been following the rules and checking the boxes that everyone wanted me and expected me to for far too long. I was very unhappy and began an unraveling process, so to speak, where I had to rediscover Jesus, find my way to God on my own terms. I had to let go of the perfectionism as tightly as I held on to it for so long. I began to experience what it was like to not be perfect, to work through my own pain, insecurities, and weakness. And here I was in my mid-30s, unexpectedly finding the need to step deeper into areas that I'd only dipped my toe in previously, and that I was always told are bad, dark, wrong, and sinful. And there's a lot more I could say about that dark period of my life, probably a conversation for another day. But as my perfectionism slowly washed away, I knew at the core that I was just a person longing for a connection to God and to other people. I felt completely exposed to God, yet completely accepted at the same time. Finding this new way, my own way back to God, involved letting go of others' opinions of me, discovering, also discovering contemplative prayer and a yoga practice. Yoga became a solace for me in the midst of this rediscovery of myself and God. And while I practiced, while I breathed, I felt the presence of God. It was new and different and not conventional, but I knew it was him. And whenever I found my way to my yoga mat, I knew I could be myself. I could be strong and powerful, but I could also cry and be vulnerable. It was a space where I didn't feel judged, where I knew I could be 100% myself. I discovered meditation, centering prayer, and through these practices, I was able to find the peace that I had been longing for. My true self, the part of me that loves Jesus and longs for a deep connection to God, has always been there. It just needed some time to be found. I found it in ways that I never expected, never imagined, and I'm grateful for all the experiences that I've had, even those that were the most painful because I never would have discovered the beauty that I have found in my relationship with God today. And while at times I still tr struggle with judgment on myself and others' opinions of me, I have found freedom in the fact that God sees me as worthy, valuable, and enough despite any circumstance or situation. So this past April, I took a trip to the shore by myself just to kind of get out of the city and spend some time alone. I was emotionally drained and wasn't sure what to expect, but I was hopeful that God would speak to me in a significant day, in a significant way. And on a cool, windy day in Ocean City, I walked down to the beach and just kind of stood there. Um, I noticed the waves, the sand, and the wind, and after that trip to the shore, I wrote this. There was a time when I asked myself, what will it feel like? How will I know? When you are with me, when you're speaking to me. I expected something magical, like little stars falling from the sky. I expected a warmth in my belly, a warmth created not by my fear of disappointing you, but through an awe and love for you that doesn't make sense. When I wandered, I thought I was lost. I judged myself. I wondered if you were judging me. I even asked you, are you disappointed in me? When I wandered, that was when you reminded me that you found me long ago. 
That was when my love for you, my relationship with you, suddenly became crystal clear. This is not about what I've done or haven't done. This is not about praying the right prayer, going to the right church, getting the approval of the right people. This is about me and you. I was never lost. I was hearing you say I'm right here. I haven't gone anywhere. The sea and its saltiness and vastness never has to say to its admirer, am I enough for you today? Are my waves and sand beautiful? The admirer loves and cherishes it regardless. And just like the sea, you, Lord, have reminded me that I am enough. I hear you say as the waves crash onto the shore, don't you know you've always been enough? And as I mentioned um, previously, I really value yoga and meditation as a way to connect with God. And I have been talking with Brad about how to make yoga available to people in our church, in our community, for no cost in a low-key welcoming environment. And so if this is something that you would like to be involved with with me or have some ideas to that end, I'm looking to build a team of folks who want to help me do that. Um, so if you're interested, um, please write yoga on your Connect card, and I will plan to reach out to you individually. Thank you.